And so he hires this man, Balaam, to come and pronounce curses upon God's people. And Balaam is on his way to this king, and you remember the story, that this donkey sees the angel of the Lord with a fiery sword in the middle of the road. And Balaam is blinded to this. So the donkey will go off to the left of the road, and Balaam beats his donkey and brings it back onto the road. They try to move forward. The donkey then goes to the right of the road, and Balaam hits his donkey yet again. The donkey eventually opens its mouth. The Lord opens the mouth of this donkey, and the donkey says, Why are you hitting me? Haven't I been a good donkey? Haven't I served you well? Don't you see this angel who's waiting to kill you? And the Lord opens his eyes, and Balaam sees this angel. But that does not deter Balaam from going to Balak, king of Moab. He goes to the king, he's hired by this king, and he seeks to pronounce curses upon Israel. But as you look at your text and you flip back a few pages, you'll see his first oracle, his third oracle, the second oracle, the fourth oracle, so on and so forth. Every time Balaam, this prophet, sees to curse God's people, the Lord speaks through him and he pronounces blessings upon God's people. The plan of this king of Moab has failed. And in chapter 24, verse 25, the verse right before our text, it ends anticlimactically with Balaam going home and Balak also going home. And this is the context of our passage this morning. So now turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Numbers chapter 25. While Israel lived in Shatim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation. And the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand And he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Saul, the chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was a tribal head of her father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor, 
and the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, even hard words such as these. We pray that you would be with me, your jar of clay, as I preach your word. We pray that your word would enliven our hearts and cause us to know you more, to love you more, and to serve you more. Amen. Perhaps you've encountered this challenge, whether it's having coffee with a friend or a family gathering, or perhaps you're talking with a coworker, and they know you're a Christian, and they'll say something like, God doesn't exist. God does not exist. And you'll be thinking to yourself, you'll be thinking, well, of course God exists. And maybe you'll go through some of the five classical arguments articulated by Thomas Aquinas. Or maybe you'll go the evidential approach and you'll seek to show various evidences for why we think God exists. Or maybe you'll use the Vantillian approach and talk about the transcendental argument for why God exists. Or maybe you'll think, I have no idea what any of those arguments are, but I know someone who does and you'll go to them, and they'll give you the answer that then you can bring back to your friend. And I would wager that many of us would not be swayed by these so-called intellectual arguments against God. People will try to give their reasons for why they do not believe in God, try to draw you away from the Lord, but likely they will fail. What we, as God's people, are more susceptible to, what will draw us away from the Lord is moral infidelity, and in this case, sexual immorality. And we see that take place in our culture. We see some of the big megachurch and celebrity pastors fall. We see even those in our own camp fall to various sins. This is my own experience even. As, uh, as a pastor's kid, my father fell to this sin. And yet the Lord did preserve him. That's a whole another story. But this is something that the Lord uh, must warn us about because we are susceptible then to yoking ourselves to idolatry as God's people here did. Now we gave the background of this story as Balaam was seeking to curse God's people and yet God only allowed him to bless his people. And we read that Balaam went home and Balaam also went home, but Balaam was not done with trying to derail God's people entering into the promised land. For if you continue reading the book of Numbers, and you go to Numbers 31:16, this is when God's people then retaliate against the Moabites and the Midianites. We read that Balaam was the one who orchestrated this whole endeavor. It was Balaam's idea to send these priestesses these women of Midian, into the camp of Israel to seduce God's people and to bring them away from him. In this text, we must beware the yoke of idolatry. We must observe the punishment of the yoke, and we must rest in the yoke of Christ. First, beware the yoke of idolatry. We see this in verses 1 through 3. The text opens up very quickly, very shockingly, that God's people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. It tells us that Israel at this time lived in Shatim. They lived in this land. You remember as you're reading through the book of Numbers, this is God's people waiting to enter the promised land. 
You remember how they sinned and rebelled against the Lord and even Moses sinned against God and he said, Moses, you and this generation of Israel will not enter into my promised land. But the generation after you shall enter. And so we read about the conclusion of first generation Israel here in the book of Numbers. And they're camped out in Shatim waiting to die out, waiting for this second generation Israel to rise up to be able to enter the promised land. And as you read the book of Joshua, this very place, Shatim, is where God's people then are raised up and they cross the Jordan and they enter into the promised land. It's a holding place. Here they are waiting, longing to enter into this promised land that the Lord has given them, this land flowing with milk and honey. There is great anticipation for God's people to be able to taste the promises that they've heard of. And yet... This is a place of great failure as well. For the text tells us the people of Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Remember, Balaam had sent in these Midianite and Moabite women to come in and to seduce God's people. We don't read of any struggle. We don't read of any ongoing challenge, ongoing temptation that eventually God's people were worn down and they sinned, but we read immediately very quickly they succumbed to this temptation and they began to pour after the people of Moab. This is a very strong word. This is a word that if your children, my children, were to use, likely we would put soap in their mouth or Tabasco sauce on their tongue. And yet the Lord sees fit to use egregious vocabulary to describe egregious actions. The people of God after the daughters of Moab. And God had warned his people to beware of this type of sin. He tells them in Exodus 34, verses 12 through 15, he says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, causing Moses to write these words, Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it becomes a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifices, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. This very thing... God's people had been warned about. Very explicitly, the exact same vocabulary is used, and yet God's people quickly, almost instantly, succumb to this sin. And it says that they began to make sacrifices to this false god, to Baal. Baal was the main god of the Canaanites. He is a fertility god. The worship practices of Baal are grotesque. They are wicked. They are offensive. So I won't give them all to you, but I'll speak in generalities. Balaam is the fertility god. If you wanted to have children, you sacrificed to Baal. If you wanted your crops to grow, you sacrificed to this false god. And the way that you would offer sacrifices to this false god is not how Israel would offer sacrifices through the slaughter of bulls and goats. It's not how we offer our spiritual sacrifices through the singing of the word of God. 
but it's going to the temple and engaging in temple fornication. And the idea is that as you engage in this wicked act, that Baal then voristically watches this act and then is compelled then to respond. And so he then inseminates the land by causing it to rain. It's quite grotesque. It's quite disgusting. And this is what God's people were doing. The text tells us that they ate of their sacrifices and that they yoked themselves to this God. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And again, we're warned about not yoking ourselves to false gods, not yoking ourselves to unbelievers. There are two places in particular I'd like to draw your attention. The first is from the Old Testament. Again, the words of Moses from Deuteronomy 22, 9-11. He gives these interesting laws, laws that we might scratch our head and, and wonder why he's saying this. He says, You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Strange laws for us to hear. Why does it matter if you sow two different seeds in one field? Well, you get two different crops. Your crop is worthless. Why should you not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together? Well, these animals are two different animals. One is stronger than the other. If you're trying to cause a straight furrow as you're trying to plant these seeds and you've got these two animals yoked together, one is going to draw the other one away and you end up with a very confused line. And then you have this other strange law. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Well, as I look around this room, all of us are wearing different types of linen together. Are we violating this law? Well, no. If you continue to read Deuteronomy 22, following this passage that we just read, you'll immediately read laws against sexual immorality. And the idea behind these laws is to say that you as God's people are supposed to be so different. It's a visual reminder to you that you are not like the pagan nations around, but you are the Lord's. You are Israel. You are His chosen people. It's a visual sign to us of who we belong to. Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and 15, when he says, Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Biel? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And we witness in this text that when God's people are yoked to those pagan nations... They're drawn away from the Lord. It is as if you had two separate types of tires on your car. You had the regular tire that goes with the car. It's the right size. You you perhaps have a flat. And so in a quick fix, you put a smaller tire on. And you're driving your car. What's going to happen to that car? Inevitably, you're going to be leaning towards that small tire because that's where the weight of the car is distributed. And in the same way as God's people yoked themselves to these Midianite people. The weight was drawn towards them. So they yoked themselves to the Midianites, to Baal. They participated in their sacrifices. 
Now we can read this and we can say to ourselves, yes, this is horrible. This is wicked. But Balaam is dead. Balaam is, is facing the wrath of God now. This is not necessarily a sin that we might struggle with today in the 21st century. The Lord says no. For Balaam is referenced many times in the New Testament. For the New Testament church. He deceives the Old Testament church and he's warned about against in the New Testament church. Let me just read a few passages where Balaam is mentioned. The first comes from 2 Peter 2.15 where Peter says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam the son of Beor who loved gain from wrongdoing. And then Jude verse 11, Woe to them! For they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain of Balaam, his error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. So these first references, these first two references of Balaam are speaking more about uh, trying to gain money using false means. This is what Balaam did when he tried to earn a quick buck by cursing God's people. But then John in Revelation... He's writing to the seven churches. And remember, he's writing to the churches and he says, this I have to commend you for, but I have this against you. And he says this in Revelation 2.15 to the church at Pergamum. And he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who would hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. This is a sin that is alive in the church today. And God saw fit to inspire his apostles to write against this error. To warn you, God's people, of not falling into the same sin that Israel of old fell against and fell into. The Lord is calling you to beware, yoking yourself to idolatry. But also, we observe the punishment of the yoke. We see this in verses 4 through 9 and then 14 through 18. They had just yoked themselves to Baal. And verse 4 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Remember, the Lord is a jealous God. These are his people. He will not stand someone else coming and stealing his people from him. So he says to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun. Hang them before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So the Lord gives Moses this command to take the chiefs and to hang them in the sun. The question we might ask is, why is the Lord calling Moses to punish these chiefs? Why not punish those who were the ones who actually committed this sin? Well, this is a federal headship displayed for us. Again, remember in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, when that serpent slithered into the garden and deceived the woman and caused the man to eat of the fruit, the Lord gave Adam the command not to eat of the fruit. He gave Adam the command to protect the garden. He gave Adam the command to defend his wife. It was Adam's responsibility to see that serpent slither in and to stop his head. And yet Adam did the exact opposite. And he sinned, and in his sin, we all sinned. Adam represents all of us. And these chiefs 
in the same way that Adam was supposed to protect the garden. These chiefs were supposed to protect God's people. These chiefs were the ones who were supposed to encourage God's people to worship Him, to pursue Him, to follow Him. And these chiefs were supposed to beware of those who came in and tried to bring God's people away from Him. And the chiefs should have seen these Moabite women slither into the camp of Israel and they should have cast them out. And yet they didn't. And so the Lord calls Moses to punish these chiefs. For they were the ones who were representing Israel. The Lord gives Moses this command. And in verse 5, the text tells us, And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men, who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. We don't have obedience in Moses. We have disobedience in Moses. Moses is saying it's not good enough that these chiefs are punished. Moses is furious. Moses is angry. All those who committed this sin must be punished, must be killed, and he sends his judges to do this work. And we know that this is a sin because the judges go out and they kill these people who engage in these acts. The plague that the Lord places upon Israel is not relented. It continues to kill God's people. So Moses sends these men to kill those who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And then we read in the second half of verse 6, that Moses and the whole congregation, they gathered at the tent of meeting. They gathered weeping and wailing and repenting. Lord, save us from this plague. Save us from these nations who have come and who have drawn us away from the Lord. And they're in the midst of this corporate repentance when we read in verse 6, And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Just imagine the scene. God's people are seeing their families die from the plague. They're seeing their sons and their daughters yoke themselves to Baal. And they're at the tent of meeting, the presence of the Lord. They're repenting. They're crying, Lord, save us from this sin. And then this man and this woman, parade themselves to the whole camp of Israel. The very sin that brought about this plague. And they go into his family's camp and they engage in this wicked act. You see this bold insanity of sin that Zimri and Cosby, both children of tribal heads from Israel and of Moab, or Midian rather, they engage in this act. It's so wicked, it's so egregious, it's so sinful that Moses is left speechless. The judges are left speechless. The rest of the priests are left speechless. They're so shocked by the wickedness that is displayed before them. As they see this man Zimri and this woman Cosby come and try to evict the Lord from his tent and say, this now belongs to Baal. And nobody does anything. Nobody except for Phineas. And we read in verse 7 who Phineas is. 
Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, he's the grandson of Aaron, he sees this wicked act take place before him. He sees Moses and the judges and the rest of the priests do nothing. And so he picks up his spear. He picks up his javelin. He marches into this tent and he pierces this man in the back and the woman through the belly in the midst of this wicked act that they are engaging in. And we see that the consequences of Phineas' actions are atonement for God's people. We see that the plague then stops. I was listening to a sermon on this text. And this preacher was preaching on this passage, and it was a pretty good sermon. And his constant refrain throughout this passage, he would yell, he would say, Where is Phineas? Encouraging his congregation to be like Phineas, to have the zealous holiness of Phineas. He would say, where is Phineas? I think it's a, it's a good question. And you might be sitting here reading this word, hearing this sermon, and you might want to associate yourself with Phineas. You might say to yourself, I would be like Phineas if this sin were to enter the camp. If I was there in Israel, I wouldn't be like this man, Zimri. I would be like Phineas. But if we're honest with ourselves, if we look at the own sin that still remains in our hearts, we realize that we are more likely Zimri and Cosby. We're closer to them than we would like to admit. These men, this man and this woman, they came in trying to display their power over God trying to say that we are going to do things our way. But the only thing that they did is they marched through the camp and they engaged in this act. The only thing that they displayed was that the wages of sin is death. They displayed that for all of Israel. They displayed that for us today. The wages of sin is death. The wages of pornography is death. The wages of adultery is is death. The wages of homosexuality is death. The wages, of course, joking is death. The wages of self-gratification is death. The wages of sexual immorality is death. This is what is displayed before us. Phineas, this priest of God's people, he foreshadows Jesus, our high priest, as well. As we read in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, and we read of Jesus' return, we read of him coming and crushing those who still remain in rebellion against him. Crushing those who will not bow the knee to his lordship, who will not repent of their sins and turn to him. And we read of Jesus stomping on the wicked like one stomps on grapes in a wine press. And the text tells us that the robes that Jesus is wearing is covered in blood. As one theologian speaking on this passage says, that this is a flood of blood as Jesus punishes those who are in sin. And again, you can be reading this passage and you can think, I would never be guilty of what this man, Zemri, and this woman, Cosby, did. The Midianites are gone. The tent of meeting is gone. Even the temple of old has been destroyed in 70 AD. I couldn't possibly be guilty of something like this. But let me read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6. 
And he said, then God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. And he goes on, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And brothers and sisters, every time we engage in sin, particularly the sin of sexual immorality, we are inviting that sin into the temple of God. We are yoking Jesus to that sin. These are hard words. These are not fun words to hear. These are not fun words to say. You may be sitting here and you may have your conscience pricked. You may be feeling the guilt of the sins that you have committed in the past. Maybe the distant past. Maybe recent sins. Maybe even sins of this past week or today. And you have this guilt upon your heart. And lovingly, I would say to you, good. If we understand guilt in its right context. Because guilt is supposed to show us what is wrong and cause us then to repent and turn to Jesus. It's like pain. If you were to take your hand and you were put, to put your hand on a hot stove, your hand would burn. And you would feel that pain coursing through your arm. And you would remove your hand from that hot stove. And the guilt that the Lord allows us to feel is to cause us to remove ourselves, to cut off our arm, to pluck out our eye, as we read in Matthew 18, and to turn to Jesus. And sin is strong. Sin is powerful. Many of us struggle with sin, and we think we'll never be able to overcome it. And we could hear the words of Paul and we can feel quite deflated, but notice that he's saying that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who resides within you. That in and of yourself, yes, you will fall, but you have the Holy Spirit residing in your heart. And it is through the Holy Spirit that you are able to overcome these sins, these temptations that come upon you. The Westminster Confession of Faith speaks about this, speaks about this idea of indwelling sin or struggling with sin for a long time. In chapter 5, paragraph 5, I'll, I'll read it for you. The Westminster Divines say this, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and to the corruption of their own hearts to ta- chastise you for your former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of your heart, that you may be humbled and to raise you to a more close and constant dependence for your support upon him, and to make you more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other sundry or other just and holy ends, that the Lord at times will allow us to fall into sin, to show us the power of sin, and to show us our need for constant reliance upon him. And we see that as Cosby and Zimri engaged in this sin, that the punishment for this sin was death, as they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And you as God's people then, as you've seen this punishment, you are called not to yoke yourselves to Baal, but to rest 
and the yoke of Christ. And we see this in verses 10 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. And we read that God burns with anger and jealousy at these actions of his people. And we read that Phineas felt that same jealousy, felt that same anger that the Lord himself was experiencing, as the text tells us in anthropomorphic language. It's not as if Phineas sees these priestesses of Midian come in and invade the camp and he thinks, well, I'm a priest of Israel, I guess I'm out of a job, I should probably do something about this. No. He loves the Lord with all his heart, his soul, his might and strength, and he loves his neighbor as himself, and he will not tolerate the sins in the camp. And so this is what motivates him, his love for God, to respond in the way that he did. And we see that the Lord blesses it, blesses his actions, so much so that he says, from Phineas, from his line, will be a perpetual priesthood. That is, all of his descendants will follow in his footsteps as they mediate for God's people, as they protect God's people. This is a covenant of peace, a covenant of shalom. As God's people were being killed by the plague, as they were being deceived by these people, God gives them a covenant of peace because Phineas has made atonement for God's people. And we said that Phineas foreshadows Jesus coming in his wrath. But also we see parallels in Phineas with Jesus in another way. For as Phineas comes and he pierces the sinner for their transgression, Jesus comes and is pierced for the sins of their transgressor. That yes, even as we do have sin in our hearts, the Lord is the one who takes the punishment for us upon himself. He was crushed for our iniquity. It is the Lord who bears the wrath that was meant for us. It is through his work on the cross that a covenant of peace is given to you. Remember, Paul has told you that the Spirit dwells within you, that you are the temple of God. One theologian, speaking about our relationship to Christ, he talks about our union with Christ. That is, we are united to Christ. Christ is united to us. And he says, as you struggle with sin, just remember who you are, that you are not your own, that you were bought with a price, that you are united to Jesus, who was pierced for your transgressions. In 1 John 1.9, and John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, this is one of the blessings that the Lord gives us. But John goes on in chapter 2. He starts the chapter in verse 1, and he addresses his people that he's writing to. And through the Holy Spirit, God is addressing you as well. And John says, Beloved, 
I write these things, that is the book that he's writing, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins and the sins of the whole world. And so as you find yourselves walking in the footsteps of the people of Israel, being tempted to yoke yourself to Baal of Peor, the Lord is telling you no. The Lord is telling you to confess your sins. The Lord is saying that even in your sins, the Lord Jesus Christ is your propitiation. But he also tells us in Matthew chapter 11, 28-30. And you know this. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Jesus says, take his yoke upon you, not the yoke of Baal, not the yoke of some other sin that you may be wrestling with or participating in. Take the yoke of Jesus upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of idolatry is heavy. The yoke of sin will weigh you down. The yoke of idols will pull you away from the Lord. The yoke of sin will destroy you. And yet the yoke of Jesus raises you up. The yoke of Jesus takes your burdens upon you. The yoke of Jesus, being united to Jesus, having your sins cast upon him, being called clean, being called pure, as Jesus, like Phineas, made atonement for his people, you then are clean. You are called then to rest in the yoke of Christ.